Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, ecofeminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Well, hello, 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 everybody, and welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast. I'm Sarah Faruya from Sarah Faruya Coaching, and today I have the most incredible legend with me who's here to talk to me. I believe there are many ways to lead a life, and everybody has stories, and I am so thrilled to invite today a delightful friend and companion of mine from way back in the day in Japan. It is Petra Laptiste. Hi, Petra. Hi, Sarah. How are you? How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> now, this is one woman who encouraged me to kind of up my style game and also to kind of show my beautiful round body more. So in honor of that today, I am bejeweled and be busted. <laughs> Yeah, seriously, you gave me so much confidence yes. over the yes. years uh, because of the way that you show up in your in your yeah. beautiful style. And also just to note, Petra is in Abu Dhabi now. So first, I would love to introduce Petra to you. Petra's originally from Canada and her family is from Trinidad and Tobago. And she is a technologically savvy cross-cultural language instructor and corporate <laughs> trainer with nearly 20 years of domestic and international professional experience. Her work spans decades, causes continents platforms from writing and editing business communications to professional coaching and cultural sensitivity training. Oh, I might be talking to you about that. She is also an effective communicator and a diversity-driven leader who has adopted innovative change models and utilized high quality technology to reach objectives. With this unique arsenal of skills and strengths, she combines years of teaching and interdisciplinary studies to create innovative solutions and environments that foster growth to positively impact business strategies. She is a creative thinker with strong planning, project management and client relationship acumen, and she has successfully developed and seamlessly executed initiatives with client-centric mindfulness that enable organizations to transform and thrive. In addition to that, she has gone from Canada to Japan, many trips to Trinidad and Tobago. And on that note, she used to run a company called Carrie Freak, which was her side hustle or her passion project when she lived in Japan. And that's one of the ways in which she and I connected as well. 
through for empowering women few the organization for professional networking in japan and i attended some of her fantastic events that she put on there sadly i never got to go and be in the carnival with her in uh, in trini but she did take uh, people over there and give them amazing tours of not only uh, trinidad and tobago but also jamaica i believe uh, yeah yeah she taught me how to palance, which is now a somewhat dated dance technique. And she also taught my husband how to grind on me, which is, I can assure you, a sight for sore eyes. Luckily, I wasn't wearing just the carnival outfit. It was on over my clothes. But um, if you can imagine me with a tiny Japanese man trying to behave like carnival people in Trinidad and Tobago. That was just yeah, such yeah. a terrific experience. Yeah. And we also cooked food there as well. 10 years ago for Fuse 30th anniversary, we celebrated in many different ways, but one of them was we put on a panel and it was called 10, 20, 30. And we chose three people from the Few community to represent the Few community from 10 years in Japan, 20 years in Japan and 30 years in Japan. And in addition to amazing Doreen Simmons, who has since passed away, uh, who was around 80 at the time, who was off 30 plus years, and lovely Kim, who ran the Tyler Foundation, now Shine On Kids. Petra was our amazing 10-year representative for uh, Few Japan. And it was just such a terrific panel. There was laughter, tears. So without further ado, let's get into this, Petra. Is there anything I've missed there? Well, I'd like to add that, okay, while I was in Japan, I was focusing on Trinidad and Tobago. That's my father's side. But my mother yeah. is Grenadian. So she's from okay. the beautiful Spice Island of Grenada, which is not too far away from Trinidad and Tobago. So that's what, you know, I'd also like to add. So I hadn't had a chance while I was in Japan to promote both countries. Yeah. So I focused on Trinidad because I had a bigger carnival. Yeah. But the plan, if I had stayed there longer, was to kind of integrate Grenada into it too. Yes. So Grenada also. And here's a representation of some tropical fruits and vegetables by a Grenadian artist, actually. So, yeah. so beautiful. The, the art in the background is absolutely gorgeous. I'm delighted that you've got that up there for us to feast our eyes yeah. on as well as listen to your Japan story. Represented here in a scarf that oh. I have um, in Japan. Yeah. And these two are from a Jamaican artist in Japan. <laughs> and these are who is that Jamaican artist in Japan? Yeah. yeah? Who who is it? Oh, Janelle. Okay, Janelle. Janelle. Okay. Yeah. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go on a, on a magical mystery tour to find her uh, details and find out about her right. art after this. Mm -hmm. So my first question to you is, Petra, tell me a story, fictional, historical or anecdotal that's had an impact or influence in your life. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Because I was thinking about that question and there are so many stories. Oh, there's so many. But I could start off by maybe bits and pieces of stories that were told to me by my grandparents, like especially my mother's uh, grandparents who were from Grenada, who passed on. But as a child, they wanted to make sure that we understood, I guess, where we were from and, uh, you know, who we were, me and my siblings, right? So they would just give us ideas like, or say that, you know, Grenada is the spice island. When you get off the plane, you smell spices, which is actually true. It's a weird thing. 
Grenada is such a beautiful place, but yeah, I would say that's, those are some of the bits and pieces of stories that I remember. Also on my father's, my late father's side in Trinidad, uh, he told us a lot about growing up. So he used to talk about back home, you know, back home was Trinidad, even though he was a citizen of Canada all his life, like for as long as, you know, since I was born, um, home to him was Trinidad. So back home when he was a kid, you know, with my uncle, they used to go here and there. They used to talk to the neighbors about all kinds of things. They used to eat this food. They used to go to church and just give us an idea of what Trinidad was like when he was growing up back in the 50s, 60s. And um, then the stories of his immigration to Canada, what it was like for him, and just understanding that who you are is important. You have to know yourself, right? And I would also say that, so from my mother's side, my dad's side, putting that together, some of the stories, the actual stories that I remember were um, the books that my father had in his library. He had collected a lot of books. He had read a lot of books. And as a teenager, I started, you know, feeling like wondering who I was. You know, Montreal is pretty, you know, multicultural. Um, I had a mix of friends who were, you know, Caribbean, who were Indian, East Indian, Chinese, Greeks. I went to a school that was predominantly Greek, actually. So it wasn't like I didn't feel comfortable. It's just that I had this curiosity. And especially because in Montreal at that time in the 80s and 90s, we didn't uh, have a lot of Black Canadian people to look up to. So it was always, you know, hip hop and stuff from the States. Plus it was also dancehall reggae that was booming from Jamaica. And then a little bit of like Calypso and Soca from the rest of the Caribbean. Um, so in my dad's library, he had old copies of a lot of James Baldwin books. So for example, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Notes of a Native Son. And he had also Native Son by Richard Wright, um, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, the autobiography of Malcolm X by now I'm forgetting his name. He wrote Roots also. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, those books, I would say Soul on Ice, the autobiography of Malcolm X were profound in forming my sense of, okay, yes, I'm a Black person in North America of Caribbean parents and before that of African ancestors. And it helped me really, really start to understand and see, unfortunately, the injustices that we were around and not to let myself, I guess, feel sorry for myself, feel sorry for being black, like there's nothing to feel sorry about. And also to feel very proud of who I was and what I came from and who I came from. So I would say those books helped that feeling in me, you know? So, Beautiful. Yeah. I just got goosebumps as you were saying that. Like, that's my like <laughs> FBGs, full body goosebumps. Gorgeous. Yeah, a, yeah. Amazing. So those books, we'll drop a little reading list into the notes for this show and cite those books for those people who are interested in knowing more about them. So through those books and through your father's stories and your grandparents' stories, you had this really strong sense of who you were. Tell me more about that, that strong sense of who you are. Wow. Well, okay. Mm. I would That's a big question. <laughs> a huge question, because then it also comes to the present from my mom. So who she is now and who she has been, 
also adds to that because I feel that, okay, this is the 10 year anniversary of my father's passing. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. And I feel that I'm even learning more now about what I thought I knew, like what my grandparents told me, you know, and then now that, you know, my mother is luckily still here, she fills in all these extra pieces to who I am and who my brothers are, you know, who we are basically. And I could say that uh, Grenada, where she's from, is a place that uh, I feel sometimes it's almost like a fantasy place. It's like, a, does this place really exist? It's such a beautiful place, but it's so filled with sadness because, you know, just like most of the Caribbean and most of the Americas, this legacy of slavery, you know, and this legacy of genocide and stuff, you know, but these are just beautiful places and small places. And then on my father's side, he's from Trinidad. I would say Trinidad and Tobago. So most of our family, so the Laptiste family came actually from the smaller island, Tobago. And then they kind of just migrated over to Trinidad. But he was from a, a village in Trinidad in the southern part uh, called Rio Claro. And back when he was young, there were a lot of people from East India, right? So after, basically the history of Trinidad is where after the slaves rebelled so much, the British needed more, they needed more workers. So they got indentured servants from China and from India. So a lot of them were brought there to Trinidad and most of them stayed in the South. So my dad grew up in a multicultural environment. So with East Indians, he ended up eating East Indian food a lot. His neighbors were East Indian, but he was also black, you know, considered like African. So I would say that all of that, although there's so many layers to who I am, you know, I've been here in Abu Dhabi, there's a lot of East Indians here. I've had people ask me, you know, oh, do you like, uh, have you ever tried Indian food? I'm like, yeah, I know how to make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know how to make it very well. It has a bit of a different flavor from the Caribbean, but it's still the basic, it's the same thing. We eat roti, we eat all these paratas and curries and things like that. So then, yeah, so it, it's, <laughs> it's such a complicated question, you know, but it's, it's an interesting one. Well, you answered and it I beautifully. You answered it yeah, beautifully. And now my mind is going back to when you did like a small lecture for us about the food we were going mm -hmm. to prepare and how some of that was actually East Indian as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm remembering now the, the history that you gave us of, the, of that region. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of sadness in those islands. And, you know, I hold mm -hmm. that and you hold that. It's important that we all hold that. How do you or how do we kind of is it insurmountable? I think it's probably part inherent in the in our histories. Yeah. I'm just interested to know if you have any insights there or I'm not asking how do we get over it, mm. please. That nothing that trite. I'm just I'm interested in how right. how that gets held in a in a society, in a country, in a in a place. I understand. Like the thing is, this is a it's a really interesting question because when you ask someone like me who actually does have citizenship of those two countries due to, you know, by descent. Yes. The thing is, I'm also seen as a foreigner still. I am a foreigner because I actually didn't live in those countries, although I visited them many times. So the answer maybe from a person like me from the diaspora is a bit different than somebody who actually still lives there, right? Mm -hmm. So someone might be like, oh, well, how can she answer that? Sure. You know? 
so, but I, you know, my answer to that is that it has to be an introspective, it has to be. So it's like, I, I don't know if we could say, oh, this person has to do this, mm. the government has to do this, this, da, 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 da. I think we, we could just maybe say, how about we look into ourselves and see what we can do from there? You know, it's, it's so complicated. Yeah, there's a lot of things to hold in that, in this system. And it's mine to hold too. And when I say mine, I mean my people, my or my country. Well, it's hard to say because we, we both live in Japan. We're both, right. We've both also kind of made moves as well. But yeah, I hadn't thought mm-hmm. of it like that so well put as you just put mm. it about Grenada and and so on back to your go on yeah I really enjoy this about you Sarah because I really find that you know you have made a lot of you're you're very open to listening and just you know rather than just saying oh well why is it like this for you like you're eloquent in the way that you want to understand it and how it really affects, you know, those of us who are, are not white, even though like, you know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, well, you're white. So you did it. Like your people did this, <laughs> you know, it, I think it's, it's the way some people approach it. And I appreciate the way you have always approached it rather than some other people who might ask some very weird cringy questions that make me want to just look at them and just actually just walk away and not even acknowledge them, you know? So I feel like the way you approach these issues of institutionalized racism, things like that is very open. Whereas some people look at it as they want to still see us as we're monkeys in a zoo. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's a show and it's not affecting them. Mm, yeah, I think, yeah, yes, I, I think so. I think so. I'm just digesting what you said. But, you know, 15 years ago may have been a different story for me, but through living here, I think you have to be open as a white person to being embarrassed and unashamed and confronted and have a lot of cognitive dissonance and be able to hold all that in your nervous system and in your heart and open big space for that and if you don't have the techniques or the information or the will or the systems around you to kind of like there's no question for me about that I'm just constantly taking direction and that introspection piece is so, so, so important. That's what I've been called to do by the people who I would consider to be my great Mm -hmm. teachers in this area, who are largely based in the US. But um, I would consider you to be one of those people as well. I think you've been an incredible presence in Mm -hmm. that way. And just having Mm -hmm. that presence and having delivering this education to people while you were there about your background and about that place and being very frank and honest about that as well is uh, about let's say that place I mean Trinidad and Tobago specifically and being in those rooms with people and bringing such joy but also such information to us yeah you you're instrumental in that stuff and we all hold it then and we all you know honestly when me and Tracy get together we often often talk about that fabulous party you put on for us and and actually Kristen, who recently did a, a drawing meditations workshop for us. Again, that was on kind of sexy stuff. Because <laughs> I, I always want to kind of go where we're not supposed to. But in a in a in a loving way. And yeah, and case again, I often shout palance and start palancing. So. You know I'll, I'll tell you a, a secret about palance. 
after, because it was played so much, yeah, a lot of Trinidadians have decided to not like it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that's what happens, yeah. right? It like, you know, really now, like if it gets played, like people will be like, mm, okay. No passe. I'm not doing it. It's too much. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. So it came on Japanese TV and we were so excited. <laughs> Don't know why they must have been doing a feature on that part of the world or on actually it was probably more likely to be on the communities in in Japan who live in Japan. I don't remember what it was now, but we were both so excited. And I think I was taking screenshots and sending them to you on the television. <laughs> Yeah, so that's amazing. And thank you for sharing this stuff with you. And please don't don't hold back on saying your really frank and honest um, stuff about this as well. Coincidentally, it's Black History Month. Um, you've been on my list of people I wanted to interview for ages. And um, but coincidentally, so this is bringing a richness to my own personal <laughs> personal learning of the history that doesn't get told the history that gets left behind, the history that gets left on the table. And um, yeah, the British Chamber of Commerce is trying to bring a little bit of that to the fore about Britain this, this month as well. Uh, great. So this is so interesting. So we've talked about Grenada, we talked about Trinidad and Tobago. Now, do you know where your ancestry is in, in, in Africa? Oh, good question. Okay, so there's one of my amazing cousins, her name is Jean, Jean Laptis. She lives in the States and she's also an educator. And, um, oh, she's so amazing. She is, I would say, one of the historians of the Laptiste family. And she was able to get a lot of information from maybe a few generations back on, let's say, the, the founding Laptiste man in Trinidad or in Tobago. So we're not sure of the full story, but as it generally goes, you know, most of the slaves who came to any parts of America, you know, from the Caribbean, South America, North America, did um, had their, their names taken away from them, right? So Laptiste could have been Baptiste, we're not sure. It could have been La Baptiste, Le Baptiste, but we also found, or she found a name in Mali called Lapti, like, L-A-P-T-I. So if anyone out there is Malian, if you can please let us know if there actually is a name like that, please tell us. <laughs> you know, I don't do the, like the, the DNA tests. I have never done those tests. Um, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with those, but that's a story. But, um, so she found something about Mali. And then living in Canada, so, so let's say before I ever went to Japan, a lot of West Africans, especially Nigerians, you know, would ask me, oh, are you Nigerian? I'm like, no. They're like, well, you look Nigerian. Like, oh, okay, possible. So just that always stuck in my head, you know? Okay, maybe since Nigerians are claiming me, you know, probably, you know, our, our family probably came from around there. So, you know, and then looking at pictures of my, my father's side, you know, yeah, it's possible. On my mother's side, we're not exactly sure. Uh, we do know that there was, was some mix with uh, some of the French, I guess, slave owners also. So in Tobago, yes, and in um, Grenada. And then there were also mixes with the native people of 
Grenada before the Europeans came, the Caribs. So that's what we know on my mother's side, on my mother's, both of my mother's sides. And then interestingly enough, when I first went to Africa, the first African country I went to was in Ghana. And that was while I was living in Japan. And um, wherever I went, I was not claimed as any Ghanaian tribe. Like <laughs> I was a foreigner. So most people thought, okay, she's from Nigeria. Like seriously, people go, oh, so you're Nigerian? So I was like, so again, I'm like, I'm in Africa. So people in Africa, in West Africa are starting to, you know, see me as the features and whatever of an, a Nigerian, whichever tribe. I didn't know which tribe they were talking about. So more recently, I've been to East Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Rwanda. And in Tanzania and Kenya, people have been claiming me. <laughs> I love this idea that like you're in the middle of Africa and everyone's kind of pulling at you yeah, going, she's exactly. ours, she's ours. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So in Tanzania, it's not like how it was for me in Ghana, where in Ghana, they're like, look, you're definitely not one of us. In Tanzania and Kenya, they're like, oh, full Swahili, full. Like, look at me, talk, talk, talk. And if I looked at them and I answered very basic Swahili, they'd be like, huh? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, who, how do you not know? Like, you're one of us. So then I'd explain in English, obviously. And they're like, huh? <laughs> you're, you're not like your family? You know, no one? I'm like, nope, not that I know of. And they're like, okay, if that's what you say. So it was, it's always been for me, like in East Africa, like I feel like they think I'm crazy because they're like, how do you not realize that you look like us? <laughs> and then here in Abu Dhabi also, because there are a lot of Africans here. I've been spoken to in Ganda, which is the Ugandan language. And also I remember that I was at Spinney's and the woman, she said something and I said, huh? And she goes, you're not from Uganda? I said, no. She goes, are you sure? <laughs> I said, not sure. <laughs> like my cousin. I said, oh, okay, maybe I'm Ugandan. So she goes, I think you're Ugandan. So I said, okay. So that's basically it. I, I don't know. So, but someone did tell me in Kenya that because the West Africans and East Africans claim it's a magical mystery it to could one. be due to the great Bantu migration that happened thousands of years the ago. The Bantu migration, what's the Bantu migration? people had begun in East Africa and spread across. So I'm part of that. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know. He was a taxi driver and I- Oh, oh I learned most of my Japanese knowledge from taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's true. Yeah. So all it wasn't a long taxi ride, but he just said that it had something to do with the fact that because you know humanity started like in the east in east africa that the whatever characteristics that i appear to have is what traveled all the way across sub-sahara region to west africa so the traits that i have can be seen in many different people so i've got homework here Bantu my i'll be yes. me and, me and so, professor google are gonna be busy yes. tonight <laughs> i know Right. I, I remember asking him, I said, okay, in Kenya, I said, what tribe do I look like I come from? So he said the Luo. So that's L-U-O. And he goes, then he said, well, you could also be the Kikuyu too. 
I said, okay. I said, any others? He goes, no, 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 those two, Luo, Kikuyu. So I said, okay. And then he goes, no, no, no. Okay, third, Swahili. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I said, okay, because in Tanzania, the Swahili people are the ones in Zanzibar, pretty much along the coast. So those are the three tribes that he feels that I could come from. So in Nigeria, so I've asked Nigerians, so I said, which tribes do you think I could come from? So most people say the Yoruba. So I said, okay. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of research to be done. That's my night sorted. <laughs> Amazing. Um, just out of curiosity, because I'm I'm reluctant to do a DNA test as well. My brother has, and you know, unsurprisingly, we are super like super northern European English. We're very yes. big white. I'm actually used to be a redhead. Um, so there's some Scottish stuff in there as well. But across that mm -hmm. band, he he's he got it back, and it was about 90% from that region. But I'm I'm reluctant for some reason. Why are you reluctant? I'm just simply curious. I just don't know where my DNA is going. Just don't I need just, to I know. don't know. <laughs> I just don't know yeah. how they're going to use my uh, DNA. Yeah, yes, after. I see what you mean. I, I, sorry, I was in the kind of metaphorical, where's my DNA going? No, you mean, where's my DNA going? <laughs> well, who's, who owns that database? What Literally. happens if they're taken? Yeah, I, I get you. Yeah. Yeah, I get you. So from Trinidad and Tobago and Grenada to Canada, what's that story? Well, my wonderful parents. So my mom, Erica, and my dad, my late father, Sherwin, they met. What's his name? Sherwin. Sherwin. S Shout out to Sherwin. This is dedicated to you, this episode. Dedicated to daddy. Yes. Yeah. May he rest in peace. Yeah. So yeah. So like Sherwin Williams, the paint. He was named after Sherwin Williams. <laughs> Who's Sherwin Williams? It's the I'm name sorry. of the paint store. And my grandfather was a pastor at a church and he was also a part-time painter. Amazing. And I guess he liked the name Sherwin. And pretty much every other Sherwin I've ever met in my life is from Trinidad. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so my dad, he has a very interesting story. So in the late 60s, he decided that he'd wanted to go on vacation to see his cousin in Canada. And at that time he was in the police force in Trinidad and you know, that was gonna be his career and everything. And he, he, he told us the story so much, so many times. So basically from that, he had said that, you know, yeah, he wanted to go and see his, his cousin. So he went and uh, he decided that he liked it. So he had applied for, I think a police job in Toronto and then I don't remember if he got the job or not, or if he got accepted, I, I don't remember that. But he did decide to um, enroll in university. So at that time, my alma mater, Concordia, was called Sir George Williams University. So he went to Sir George and he studied. So he stayed in Canada. And uh, he met my mom, Erica, who had been in Canada a few years before that because she came with her family from Grenada. So my mother's story, which is also quite interesting, is because my mother's father's mother, right? So my mother's paternal grandmother was living in Montreal as a domestic from since the 1920s. <laughs> so she had been able to give my grandfather in Grenada a great life with all the remittances and so on, you know? So he was well taken care of. 
So he was able to have his footing in Canada. So he went to Canada. He also went to Sir George University, uh, Williams University. And um, then he sponsored my grandma and then my mom and her siblings, my aunts and uncles, and then a whole lot of other cousins <laughs> over the years. So from the six, from this, I would say 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of my Grenadian family has come to Canada. And again, new information was that, you know, a lot of my cousins were taking care of me when, uh, you know, I was a little infant. <laughs> so I, all these things I only, re only recently found out, honestly. They'd be like, you, you know, we actually took care of you, Petra. So I didn't know that. <laughs> so yeah, so they met in Montreal on a bus, on the 124 bus one evening. They were, my dad was staring at my mom. <laughs> and someone, I guess, was between them and noticed. So he, he or she, I don't remember if it was he or she, let them sit together. Well, there's a story. There's a story. I have to, a couple <laughs> of friends over here, uh, Chris and Catherine, who also met on a bus in Scotland. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so cool. So Yeah. Yeah. And that's the story. That's the story. And so you have how many siblings? Well, I have two brothers and I have a sister. So it's, uh, it's, it's the four of us. So big of, family. Yeah, three of us grew up together. And then we've met our wonderful sister, Krista, a few years later. So she is a wonderful addition to the Laptis family. Amazing. So, what a fascinating yeah. story as well. There's always all these little bits and pieces hanging around in families. And then people unfold those bits and pieces for you as time goes by, right? Yes. My grandma on her, like the last couple of years of her life started revealing all kinds of stuff to mm -hmm. us that we were like, what? <laughs> like really like, oh, where you, where you question all your stories, right? You're right. like, oh. You question everything, yeah. Oh. <laughs> And, and that's one of the reasons I love stories. That's why the, one of the reasons I love storytelling, because it helps us to just, I think it helps us to question things all the time, but also it's, um, yeah, it just shows us the many ways to lead a life. I mean, that's, you know, the real, the real thing, especially from the coaching perspective is to allow people to understand that there are many, many ways to do things. So many, so ways. many ways. So many ways. And I actually try to tell like, you know, I, I teach high school students right now. Yeah. Girls and in a very different society yes you know? and you know that's one thing i've i actually was talking to them about uh, this past week that you know there's no one way to lead a life and as long as you're true to yourself and uh, as long as you know again here it's very important to have your parents and your family's blessings so as long as you can share your your goals with your family and have them understand that you're helping yourself your family your community as a whole then you know once you have that then yeah just do your best you know so yeah there's there's not one way and it's not just because you want to be for example a doctor like there's so many types of doctors there's so many and there's so many ways to get to being a doctor you may not go directly from bachelor master doctorate like not everybody do does that. I mean, it sounds like you're really you good know? at this, like navigating those cultural lines there. It sounds like you're very sensitive to it while at the same time being encouraging. What's your philosophy there? Oh, I don't know if it's a philosophy. I just feel that my parents from young, like 
I don't know if they explicitly told us, but I just remember this feeling that we had to always respect people's cultures. Like we had to be proud, we had to know our culture, know that, okay, yes, we were born in Canada, but we're not, we may not be seen as Canadians, right? But we still have to respect other people. And I think also, Maybe I was lucky in, in the Montreal, in, in the school board that we were in, they had a lot of um, discussions when we were kids, like in moral and religious education. They got us to think about, you know, critically think about religions and uh, morality and ethics. I think that also helped a bit. And the fact that, yeah, there were a lot of students, a lot of like people I went to school with who were just like me, first generation, born in Canada. So all of our parents came from somewhere else, whether it was an English speaking country or not English speaking country. And it was the, this way, it was mostly this ethic of, okay, we know that the, you know, I, I like the word hegemony, you know, we're gonna, <laughs> you know, they're there to push us down. So we're here to work and do our best and make sure our kids do what they need to do to get out of the bottom. And I feel that when I was in elementary school, most of my friends whose parents were immigrants, like mine, we didn't necessarily live in the projects. Because I, I, I don't know, Montreal didn't have huge, huge projects that much. But we lived in, I guess, lower income areas. Okay, we lived in a house. My, my father had bought a house, right? Which was great. But not a lot of my friends' parents had bought houses at that point. However, in high school, most of my friends' parents um, had bought houses. So it was, let's say, a 10-year difference, like a 10-year period where these immigrant families worked to save to get to buy houses. Love that too. That's a you brilliant know? story. And, and that just, again, it shows you that there's no monolithic way to do things as well mm -hmm. I guess as well if you're talking yeah. just on a very practical level and the same I suppose for living in multi anywhere in multicultural is when you go to somebody else's house and their culture is like radically mm -hmm. different from yours everything's different the smell is different the pictures on the wall mm -hmm. are different the food is different the ways are different like take your shoes off yeah. okay <laughs> or like you know yeah, and yeah. All those things. And the funny thing is down the street, like the, where we lived um, when I was in elementary school was um, in like a, I guess a suburb of Montreal, Saint Laurent. And just a few houses down from mine was one of my friends, Christine, and her family was Greek, right? And uh, it's funny, even though, okay, my parents were Caribbean, spoke English, her parents were Greek, spoke Greek. <laughs> when we went, <laughs> both of our houses, we had the living rooms that we couldn't touch. Like the way our house was, like the living room was in the front of the house, but we couldn't really sit there until, unless there were guests. Like we yeah. couldn't, right? The good room. The good room. Yeah. And <laughs> in her house too, like the, the living room. And <laughs> they still had um, plastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the um, couch, you know, like at my grandmother's house, basically, there was plastic on the couch. And they had, I remember those black velvet pictures, like either with Greece or some kind of cultural thing, 
you know, on the wall. And we had like the black velvet, like Trinidad and Grenada on the wall. <laughs> so the, the, the smells of food were different, but it was the basic, I, basic idea yeah. was the same. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of get the couch thing. Like if it wasn't like not very stylish, I'd go for that. <laughs> Definitely. Right. I get it. I totally get it. Keep it nice. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. you spend so much money on the on the couch. Exactly. You don't and they want are any do dirt on it. Absolutely. Love it. I have a quick question. I yeah. love your bracelets. Oh, is that you. like that? Is that those shells? What do you call them? This one is the cowrie. Yeah. The cowrie <gasps> look what I have on my desk as well. Oh, look at that. Very that nice. In Kagoshima, where I just, I think they're oh, so beautiful. Yeah, they're. Off the beach in Japan. But they aren't they sacred in. Um, yes, I'm not sure all of the tribes that use them, but I know in many West African and East African cultures, they were used as currency, as, as money for trading. But the basically, like these are silver. And the reason why I have these, again, these were uh, made for me by um, a Black American uh, jeweler. And I have quite a bit of his uh, jewelry in my closet, earrings, and all kinds of stuff. So I had these made, I asked him to make these because I needed something to uh, replace the ones that my grandmother had given me when I was uh, born. <laughs> so my mother's mother in Grenada, there's a lot of Grenadians who wear these specifically, Grenadians. Other islands do too, but for whatever reason, I remember was it three years ago, I'd gone to Grenada and I'm in the line coming off the plane at, at immigration. I just look at people's wrists, right wrist, this. <laughs> It was so man, woman, child, this. So I think whatever tribes we came from, maybe more one tribe was in Grenada and held on to this legacy of, of these. I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but it's supposed to prevent the evil eye Lovely. at birth. Love it. Yeah. I love the, I love tracing these stories. And then I like, I do actually love imagining them out as well somewhere, even like, I don't know if it's just a Catholic thing or if it's a certain parts of Britain thing is we similarly, when we're babies, we get these little tiny silver bracelets that kind of, they stretch a little oh. bit so that you can wear them when you get a bit older, but then you replace them when you're older. But like, yeah, yeah, they kind of link over like that. And like so many people I knew had those when they were babies and then you just kind of keep them and well, you know, they get lost somewhere along the line. But yeah, there's the, I love these little exactly. traditions that all link together. Yeah, and, and the thing is, the, the interesting thing is the one that I had that my grandmother gave me was a bit thinner and I had it in Japan. I used to wear it all the time and she passed away the same year my dad did and it broke actually right like after my dad passed. So like she passed in July, he passed in November, it, around December it broke. <laughs> yeah. And then my brother, one of my brothers, uh, Sean, his broke too. Wow. Yeah. So we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. What do you make that mean? Well, we were nervous. Actually, no, I think all three of ours, it was Sean and Shane's, all of us, my two brothers and mine broke. So we were like weirded out and my conclusion was that like we didn't need her protection anymore like we were on our own but not not like she left us alone but we just didn't need it as much i guess 
it was just like, okay, now it's time for you yeah. to do your own That's thing. So this was doing my own thing. Beautiful. I'm getting a little kind mm. of witchy feeling about kind of that. It's like, it's your, you're it now kind of thing. Like I'm gone now, now you're the next me or something yes. like, you know, cause at some point we do have to kind yeah, of become the adults like and take our place as elders. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, it could be. I mean, again, this is just me is. making up stories yeah, I, in my I, incredibly imaginative I, head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if I can tell you another story about my... Oh, please keep them okay, coming. Here's another story that just came to my mind because uh, talking about her, and this has to do with Japan. So in uh, the last place I was living in Japan was in Yokosuka. And... Um, <laughs> no way yeah so i live near yokosuka now yeah that's true you live in Yokosuka. Yeah. oh it's so yeah. beautiful oh my gosh it's gorgeous oh. isn't it oh, love it so yeah so i was living there and it was in the summer summer of 2012 right and we all know how humid and crazy hot japanese summers are right so i had a small yard and you know like if you put um if you have all the gravel and and pebbles in your yard, you're going to get weeds. So right after the rain season, weeds. And I knew that, okay, I was going to come home after work one day and just weed out everything. So I had come back home and it was still afternoon. It was still sunny out. And I noticed that there were, the weeds were gone. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is weird. So I get inside the house, hear the doorbell ring, open the door, and I see this little old lady, little old, old um, chap. yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So she's like, konnichiwa. <laughs> so I was like, konnichiwa. Yeah. Uh, genki desu ka? So I was like, oh, genki yo. So she's, so however she explained it in Japanese was that she's <laughs> like, you saw what, what I did outside. <laughs> and she's tiny, tiny and frail looking. I was like, you did that? And she's like, mm. <laughs> So I looked at her and like her expression was very much like my grandmother's, very much. And the thing is that people may not realize that, okay, like they might think, well, why would you think your grandmother would look like a Japanese woman? Wow. So as I mentioned, a lot of Grenadians come from Carib people and the Caribs look like Japanese people with tans. Okay. So, <laughs> so that's what my mother looks like. And that's what my, my grandmother looked like. So this woman, her expression looked like my grandmother's. Yes. I was like, oh, okay. So I asked her if she wanted any water. Cause I'm like, but this old lady, she just <laughs> did this backbreaking. We did my God. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, okay. So I said, do you want to come in? She goes, no. So I was like, okay. So I went to get her water. So she just drank it. And she, as she's drinking, she's looking at me. <laughs> and then she hands it back and she just gives me this beautiful smile like my grandmother, like her, her expression, everything was grandma. And I was like, oh. And I was like, you don't want to come in? She's like, mm -mm. and I said, but where do you live? She goes, oh, just around. And I said, but I've never seen you because I used to walk around the neighborhood a lot. You know, and I was like, I figured I'd see people. And she's like, oh, I've seen you. <laughs> I said, oh, she goes, all the time. I said, oh, she goes, yes, you'll be okay. 
And I said, okay, let's jam it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, huh, wait a minute. Is that my grandmother? <laughs> it was just, it was so calming. It was, it made me sad, happy and confused, yeah. but calm. Yeah, yeah. that's grief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's such a charming story. My yeah. friend Gretchen and I, I say friend, she's also my kind of peer and mentor and um, she has been my client too. We run a grief course together. We run a grief, a six month grief journey together. She's kind of the person who's that person. But she always says when we have these little mm. stories or these little coincidences, she says, we don't need to believe in it. Just let it be huge. And that's what I think is lovely about the bracelet snapping and that, yeah. that Obachan coming to your door and like beaming like your grandma, just like, yeah. we don't, I mean, but I, I can, I noticed this in your bio as well. Both of us have a degree in biology, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we, but that's yeah. something we have in common. So like, I love science. Don't get me wrong. I love science, but I also love a little bit of magic as well. You know, like, exactly. you know, exactly. let it be huge. Why not imagine that that was some kind of visitation or something like that? I'm not about to go and, you know, spend a thousand dollars to join a cult of that nature. <laughs> I'm still pretty much grounded in reality, but why not let exactly. it be huge? Why not? Let it be huge. That's, exactly. That's the magic of it. Yeah. And I enjoy that. And, you know, I've shared that this story before with other people and they've had similar instances too, you know, with grief and so on. And, you know, now that I have a master's of arts in interdisciplinary studies, you know, now I also, you know, I like looking at these uh, relationships in between that join all these, like the sciences, biology, philosophy, you know, language, linguistics, all these things are intertwined, right? There's so many commonalities you, know, you can't explain a problem just one way you can't no no not at all it's all it's all interdependent and it's 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 fascinating it's mm -hmm. fascinating really fascinating so that brings me so we've just talked about japan so how do we get to japan let's kind of we went to university we studied biology good we can leave that behind but what happens next how did you oh. what was your journey to japan and then on to the next piece what made you leave japan yeah. you loved japan didn't oh, you i did oh I yeah did. like yeah you you oh. felt like part of the fabric to me when you were here but hey how dare japan. you leave but hey <laughs> I love Japan so much. And so how did you get there and what did you do? And yeah, okay. Yeah. It's funny. Someone was just asking me this the other day. So basically, I didn't know much about Japan. So I got to Japan in, in uh, 2001, right? And Same. Yeah. Same. Same. It was 20, May 2001. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. February 8th, maybe. I can't remember the early February and it was freezing. It was about minus 30 in Montreal when I left. And, you know, my parents, my brothers came to the airport with me. I had applied. So basically I finished university. I was working at a bank before that. And I took my first ever vacation outside of, let's say the Caribbean to the Philippines the year before in 2000 with money that I had made at my first job after graduation, you know, so I had some money. So some friends had invited me to their cousin's wedding in the Philippines in 2000. So that was, I remember, I think it was June, 2000. And um, we had to take, we had to fly 
So it was Montreal, Vancouver, Vancouver to Narita, Narita to Manila, right? On, um, so back in the day. And Narita is the, used to be the main international airport for right. Tokyo. So in yeah. 2000, back then they were issuing, remember, paper tickets and airlines were giving a free stay at a hotel if you had a long layover. So we had a long layover in Tokyo. So we arrived in the afternoon and we were able to stay there until the next morning. So they included the hotel stay and whatever, whatever. So some, and it was a big group of us because there was a lot of the family and so on coming from Montreal to go to this wedding in the Philippines. So some of the group wanted to go into Tokyo and everyone was like, yeah, we go to Tokyo. And then I think one person had said, Tokyo's far. You know, like it's far. We're not in Tokyo now, so I was like, I don't know. Yeah, we're in Japan. I don't know where we are. So we got, yeah, we got there in the evening. Sorry, so we didn't get to really, couldn't really navigate where it was, right? So in the morning, when we got out of the hotel, looked around, we're like, wow, this is kind of cute. It's like it's a little cute place, you know, cute little trucks driving around, and just, just cute. So I was like, hmm. And for the first time in my head, something was just like, hmm. Maybe I'll be back, maybe. It, but it wasn't like a strong feeling. It was just like, oh, interesting place. Anyway, forgot about all yeah. that for a few months. And then um, at the end of 2000, one of my friends had, um, had gotten in back in touch with me and said she had just finished a year in Japan teaching English. So I was like, oh, why Japan? So she's like, well, it's cool. It was nice. Da, 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 da. So I said, you speak Japanese? She's like, no, you know, the usual questions. Oh, you have. Japanese. I was like, you know, yeah, I don't yeah, speak yeah. Japanese. I don't yeah. know anything about Japan. I just know robots, 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 you know? So she's like, no, Petra, it's not yeah. just robots. So yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. And I had never had Japanese food, nothing, nothing. So she said, try and apply. Like you could apply to the JET program, which she did, or I could apply to any of the language schools. So I applied to a language school and I got in. So I done. So in three months, it took like three months to process the visa and I was on a plane to go. Which language school out of interest? Eon. Eon, okay. Yes. So back then, the teacher who was leaving the company would get in touch with the new teacher. So I remember her name. Here's Laura. I don't remember her second name, but she was from, I think she was from Vancouver. I can't remember, but she had written me a letter explaining <laughs> back of the day letters explaining you know what to expect and everything she would be there to greet me and all this stuff and she had left certain things in the apartment for me and blah 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 so when I actually arrived in so I was working in Machida Machida uh, you know in in Tokyo but my apartment was in Kanagawa in Sagamihara so Sagamihara this story is like I, we must have been going past each other on train my my office was in Machida when I moved there in May 2001 and I lived in Atsugi no way. yes I lived in Atsugi for the first 16 months I was in Japan that's bonkers so basically for anybody who doesn't have the very 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 high context of this corner of Japan um we were basically living on the same yeah. line two or three yeah. stops from one another and our offices were in the same yeah. town unbelievable oh okay so yeah, yeah Eon was on that like okay off the JR uh, Machida station 
there was that thing and you walked down and there was a donkey. Well, no, Don Quixote was after that, sorry. It was before, I forget what that road is. It's going towards Tokyo Hands. Yeah. Yeah, on the left side. That's Big where, main, main road, yeah. Yeah, that road. So, wow. wow. <laughs> Gosh. so yeah so that that's basically how I got to Japan so it was just I just wanted a change and my friend encouraged me to go and I just said okay I'll just be there for a year that's it you know just a year same same right and with Eon they said you can extend your contract by three months or by six months or by a year so I said okay I'm only going to do an extra three months so mm -hmm. it was from basically February 2001 to May, I guess, May 2002. And the time just went by so fast. I remember I cried the first night I actually stayed in my apartment because it was so small. I was like, what is this? <laughs> I was like, what am I supposed to do in such a small space? How, yeah. how do you live? Like, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah. It really didn't. Yeah, especially coming from somewhere like Canada. Yes. It's just it's such a culture shock, isn't yeah. it? The, but you get used to it somehow. Yeah, you do. And then I got yeah. so used to it that when I moved here, my first apartment in Abu Dhabi was huge. And I was like, how am I going to live with this? How am I going to decorate how? all this? I, like it was too so much. much space. Yeah, too it much space. It seems so wasteful, doesn't it? You're like, what? Yeah. Oh <laughs> so after a year, I decided to move into a smaller apartment. And I stayed there for four years, basically, in a studio. Wow. And my friends would be like, Petra, are you okay? <laughs> They're like, it's kind of small. It's nice, but it's small. So I said, you know, it was nice. And then only after the, only during the pandemic, that's when I was like, I'm going crazy. So where I live now is back to spacious and comfortable. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Like I've gotten used to being, you know, living big, I guess. So what kept you in Japan for how many years were you there? 10, 11? Basically it was so a year and three months with a year and a half gap going back to Canada thinking I was done. No more Japan. I did 15 months. I'm good. And I kept talking about Japan while I was back in Canada. I was just like, yeah, you know, in Japan, you know, they do like the, in Japan, in Japan, in Japan. <laughs> and it was just, people got sick of it. And they're like, well, when'd you go back to Japan? So I was like, oh, maybe I should. So I just applied to some companies and I got into a weird situation with the first company that, that hired me. Not very good. But all I can say is that I don't know how many foreigners in Japan get to sue a Japanese company and get their salary back. Amazing. I did it. Well done. I got my money good that you. I deserved, that they owed me. So after that, I was lucky enough to work for a company called Phoenix Associates, and I believe they've changed their name recently. And so I worked with them for the rest of the time that I was in Japan. And the great thing about working for a company like that was that, I guess you could call it dispatch work or, you know, it was part-time contracts. So you work for certain companies that need you to teach English to their clients, and you kind of make your own schedule. So I had all this other time to do things. Again, I was teaching adults, you know, meeting people who were very interesting, you know, sharing, talking, learning about Japanese culture. That's how I learned about Japanese culture through, like you said, taxi drivers and through my 
clients. They told me business etiquette. They told me even relationships, how, oh my gosh, one guy, how to cheat on your wife. Like, wow, God, I was like, that's too much information. But it's like (laughs) stories that I remember. I was like, what? Then even like, I was almost like a therapist. Like one of my students, you know, would say how he hated the drinking culture, having to fake his life and and drink just because it was necessary. Non-communication, they called it. Not nomu meaning drink in Japanese. Non-communication. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. You know, and other instances of, you know, some of the female clients telling me about the worst situations they had with harassment, you know, like all kinds of stories. Yeah. More and more stories, you know? So doing that, and I guess when people, you know, when you get to like, some of the contracts would be really short. So it might be like a month of teaching, you know, this person at their office, or some would be years, years and years. The longest was actually, so I was there for what, eight and a half years. Yeah, the longest client was from the beginning all the way to the end. He was like an uncle to me. And basically through them, through their asking about who I am, you know, Canada, oh, Canada's black people? Yes. Oh, okay. So tell me more. So those little things. So after a while, I was like, well, maybe a lot of Japanese people would like to know, you know, about this corner of the earth, like, you know, about the Caribbean. Most people didn't know. You know, so I said, okay, maybe that's what I should start doing. And then in 2009, I had the opportunity to go to Ghana. So one of my friends in Japan, she is married to a Japanese man, and she would go back to Ghana just to relax and, you know, see her family and so on. So she, she said, just come along. So I went and like how I was telling you about the books that had changed my perspective on things about being black in North America being in Africa was completely, oh my goodness, changed my universe. Oh my God, tell me, how did you feel when you stepped off the plane and stepped in? Was it like, oh, it was like uh, feeling just even, okay, even though I didn't look Ghanaian, right? I was African. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I felt, especially coming from Japan where I'm stared at as complete other, other. Oh, she's black. Kokujin, oh, gai kokujin. Yeah. You know, gaijin. Yeah. In Ghana, African, black. Okay, fine, you're black. And the food. So when I had the food, I was like, wait a minute. I know this food from the Caribbean. I mean, we, we changed it a little yeah. bit, but it's the same food. It was just like the energy. I was just like, oh my gosh, this place is just, oh. it, yeah, it got me feeling so good. But the hardest thing was when um, I went to Cape Coast and Cape Coast is one of the, I guess the towns along the Atlantic that um, had the slave castles. So, but the thing is that day, I remember, because it was like in April, it was during golden week I'd gone and I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that, mm-hmm. that, that at the beginning of the day, I decided to go to the national, like one of the national parks, just to go hiking. 
And then I took a taxi and he brought me to Cape Coast. And I thought, okay, I'm going to Cape Coast. It's a slave castle. However, it was me and some other, I think two other women who were on the tour. So we went and they explained, there's a plaque that explains that at this point, try not to bring your anger towards other people. Like from what I understood of, of what they were trying to say, because I can't remember exactly what the words were, but it's like, don't go taking your anger out on white people right now <laughs> because, you know, of what happened here. So I was like, okay, like still, I was kind of, I was really naive. I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to see. So we go into the, the dungeon and all of a sudden I just feel this heaviness. I was just like, whoa. Yeah. So it's not, it hasn't been cleaned. There's, you know, this is centuries of human waste and suffering. And it was heavy. Like, I, I can't put it into words. It, it was just overwhelming sadness that you could just feel. You could feel what, if it's spirits, whatever it is, you could feel it, suffering. And right above it was a church, <laughs> oh, church overlooking the Atlantic. And um, then they brought us to the different chambers. Yeah. So where the bad slaves would, regular slaves would, captives would be put in one room, the males separate from the females. And again, from doing my own research, basically there are many tribes, right? So they would find, let's say if there was a battle going on, some of the tribes that had lost uh, the battles would be captured and enslaved. So that's what happened. So many people died in the first part of being captive in, in that fort. The ones who survived were taken on ships, right? So just before they leave the castle, there's a sign that says the door of no return that was printed. I think they put that there in the nineties. And then on the other side of it, they put the door of return because they had had some ceremonies where people like me from the diaspora came back, you know? And there was one part of the castle, of the dungeon, I would say, where they said they put the bad slaves. And when the man opened the door, me and the other women, we stepped back. <laughs> one of them started crying. I almost started crying because it was so whatever, spirits were there were like literally it felt like they were coming at us like the, whatever force it was just a very strange feeling and I remember because my friend wasn't able to come with me she was pregnant at the time so she was you know I had a mobile phone and I told her you know my taxi guy had left so after that little emotional tour I was like <laughs> and I was like two hours away from the city I was like what do I do <laughs> how do I get out of here so she had to, I put her on the phone with somebody to get me somewhere. So I ended up getting back. So when I got back to the hotel, I called my parents and um, started crying. Like, yeah, it was very, 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 very emotional. And then this leads to why I left Japan because um, not that day, but a few days after that, we found out that my father had cancer and they didn't want to tell me on my trip. 
but they ended up telling me because I felt something was wrong. So basically from that time to when he passed is uh, one of the reasons that I left is just because of grief, you know, because it was, it was getting hard to live away from family. And I felt I needed to be home. Thank you for sharing that story, Petra. It's, um, it's, it is a lot in our bodies. No, I almost feel like I, it's a weird thing. I say it feels like my your DNA twitches sometimes yeah. or something or those ancestral lines and those ships then went on to my hometown of Liverpool. Yeah. And um, oh. I don't think of that place the same as I used to in the last, mm. there's a, it's a bit trite but there's a slave museum there and you go and you go oh but it's not the same as like when you really properly read like I think it was Rennie Lodge White I think is her name a woman who wrote why I'm no longer talking to white people about race she's a British author and she wrote an account of what it you know I mean people from Liverpool have this really great pride in like the maritime history and all this kind of stuff but she wrote three pages of like how she went there and she could feel oh, I heard that, that what you just described, mm -hmm. you felt. She could feel that in the walls, in the buildings, in the streets, in the street names. And that just, that flipped something in my body as well, which is interesting. And I haven't been back since because that was at the beginning of the pandemic, maybe, that I started getting into, into that book. So you talked about it in Grenada as well and there and then this unresolved stuff especially for we're using the word white people because it's it, oftentimes it's seen as a, somebody else's problem not that we don't hold yeah. that and we hold that too right that's that's yeah. what it is that's that's um, yeah and uh so it's uh I think this is a story that does need to be told in exactly beautifully in the way that you said it there, that kind of contrast between arriving and feeling so full and then going there and feeling all yeah. of it. And then just, oof. yeah, completely, yeah, like drained because it, it's like, so whether or not that was where my ancestors came from, they came from one yeah. of those castles along the coast and they survived that. Then they survived the ships. Then they survived the treatment yeah. on plantations. Like it, it was just, it was too much. Honestly, it was, yeah. I was like, so yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's so heavy. And the millions of people who didn't survive. So yeah, it's it's such a heavy topic, you know. And that's why, like, I really try, like, for Black people, even for Africans, there are a lot of Africans who I've met who don't really, who also disconnect themselves from it. They say, "Oh yeah, it was somebody here in our country who did that." It may not have been someone I was really, you know, like they don't necessarily see that, wait a minute, that was your cousin <laughs> who left, who was taken. You know what I mean? They don't see that or your brother, you know, your, I mean, as your ancestors, brothers who were ripped apart. So there's still a lot, there's a, that other dialogue of, well, now who do you blame? 
So it couldn't just be the European slave owner who was only to blame. Yes, it was a big system. Yes, we get it. But somebody on the African side might have helped him. You know, so there has to be, there's, there's so many levels to it. So many, Petra, so many. And my deep knowing is that system replicates itself over and over and over again in all and that's not to take away from there but it's that kind of whatever that was whatever that is when one person's like no way you're not taking that person but then the other cousin's like go for your life thanks for the cash it's like there's humanity has a lot of cruelty it does it does and yeah I didn't even realize that when I first went to Zanzibar, that Zanzibar has the same history. Like East Africa has the same history as West Africa when it's a slave trade, but it happened on the uh, Indian Ocean. Going the other direction. Yeah. I mean, th but this is fascinating. I mean, I'm interested, put it that way. I'm interested and my interest is not foreshadowed mm -hmm. by my sadness and my shame and my my feelings about this and the, the physical way that it's, but my interest remains with those things. And, and if I can stay with that interest and those feelings without having to kind of make some kind of codependent soup in there, that's one of the things Petra that allows me to kind of stay with these, yeah. with these stories, yeah. um, which is hard. It's hard for people to do that without defensiveness or fragility. That's it, the defensiveness, because, uh, you know, with, with, Black people overall in, in the West, yes. right? Let's say the yes. West, is that it's always there. <laughs> we can't hide from these microaggressions or macroaggressions. We can't, you know. Um, I remember I had a, a coworker who was, uh, you know, from Australia and she was of Palestinian ancestry. And she had gone through a lot of issues growing up in Australia back in the 70s and 80s and 90s because she had the olive complexion, the dark brown hair, where the, a lot of the people that she went to school with were blondes, right? Blue-eyed. So it was that ideal. Again, it was the, this, that Eurocentric beauty standard, right? And she was called, they have these names for, yes. for that type of people. So she said she understood, you know, how it was for me. So I said, okay, I understand, you understand, but when we look at it, you're still white. <laughs> and she was like, well, I said, you may not consider yourself white, but if you and I are together, you're most likely gonna get treated better than me. Interesting. So that's when she shook, like she, and she started crying. Like she's just, oh, and she goes, and I said, it's okay. I said, because I know, I said, you just have to understand that. Yeah. That there's levels. And I said, now, you know, like that's, that's what it is that it's not just, oh, we got treated badly because we're not blondes. It's that, oh, beyond that, you can get through many things just because you're not black. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things I think a lot of people don't see, don't realize. And yeah. they think, oh, well, those Black people are just complaining. Oh, no, we're not just complaining. <laughs> I can yeah. study, I can travel, I can do everything, you know.
it doesn't mean that just because I'm observing something that's real that I can't do anything or that I'm lazy. It doesn't, you know, oh, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to look after yourself really well, don't you? There's just a, like a level of looking after oneself. I yeah. mean, the word self-care is so overused in so many places now, you know, but like I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but in a different context, we were talking about ADHD. Mm -hmm. So like that and all the kind of ways that people mm -hmm. have to mask and put themselves up and like put lots of different kind of things in place, but it's the same, same, but different. Mm -hmm. It's that sense. It's that mm -hmm. constant vigilance. It's that constant knowing and, and explaining. And also that's what my understanding is anyway, that you have to do one hell of a lot loads more maintenance yes. just to do the same normal thing as another person I have a friend who suffers from that and that's pretty much what she's described and she, yeah she's been tired just tired yeah and it's the same for what you're talking about yeah. I mean I, I'm only saying that because it's it's also ADHD awareness month <laughs> but uh, yeah. so I'm interviewing somebody who's ADHD in a couple right. of weeks in a different context that's because yeah. I want to it's well it's code switching i'm know? not saying it's the same oh yeah right. code switching but in adhd world they call it masking or we call it masking yeah. so you have to mask to kind of pretend you're okay and you're trying constantly scanning am i saying the right thing is it wrong am i yeah. like this kind of stuff yeah. so that's in but um uh, sorry patrick i don't mean to kind of hijack this yeah. with adhdness but it's no just problem. it's yeah. that kind of it's that extra effort that can help make you burn out quicker or that makes you want to plead with people please hear me <laughs> please just listen to what I'm telling you this is not up for discussion this is me telling you information this isn't a high school debate right give me a break give me every goddamn day this is my life there you go. right <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and and this is me talking as you, as I understand what you just said. Gosh, I got very passionate there. I'm going to smell some lemon oil, bring me back down to earth. <laughs> Maybe I should shake my cowrie shells as well. <laughs> right. So that's the thing. So if you're going through that with that, then you see exactly, you know, the, the, the parallel and how tiring it can be. So in Africa, there's a level of less masking. Oh yeah, but you can't on. mask, right? Right. Like I can't mask I can't. in Japan. There's no masking that I'm not Japanese, that you can't it's, mask. And again, I'm not saying, because I get to be, I'm going to use your words here and this makes me feel uncomfortable to say it. I'm not black. Right. Right. So there's a, there's an element of un blackness is that what exactly. i'm understanding no, i guess yeah non-blackness unblackness. i don't know what it is but yeah okay. that's what it is yeah you, you that was your words you used before which was like that was another revelation to mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. and that's basically it <laughs> so my darling what's next for you what's next oh my goodness well for those people who are listening i would be open to your suggestions what does a woman who has all this experience in teaching adults, teaching high school, has a, a degree, a master's degree in, in interdisciplinary studies, what should I do? I really feel that whatever the next step is, right? After, let's say after teaching in Abu Dhabi, 
is definitely still teaching in a way. Like I think I'm always a teacher. So Japan helped me realize that I'm a teacher and I love teaching. So it may not be high school English, but I, it will be something else. Consulting, whatever it is. I definitely see, and teaching, diversity, culture. That's what I see. It's something there, either I'm gonna have to make it myself or somebody has it ready-made for Petra to continue and to pass the torch. <laughs> so well, that's I'm going to say, let's next. talk. Let's have a coaching session. I'll give you a coaching session and, and let's talk about it and yeah. see what we can make happen yes, yes. or instigate yes. or in, ignite. Oh my God, how amazing. And so, I, God, mm. I just, I don't want to get off. I want to keep going. This is just, this is awful, but I've got to close it because... <laughs> because you're not mine <laughs> so um yeah teaching diversity and culture i see it so you're ready for your next move and you're out there in abu dhabi so how long have you been there oh my you? gosh seven and a half years God, I can't again it's been that long oh yeah well i thought it was only gonna be yeah two years well <laughs> we, we should have learned our lessons by now about that that little net chestnut so petra there are many ways to lead a life what does that mean to you oh leading your life wow basically okay as each year passes you're gonna start feeling where there's a point where like if you haven't been listening to yourself you're it's gonna like hit you in the face <laughs> and you're just gonna say oh oh okay i'm listening yes this is it like you can't get away from it if in your 20s, you thought, oh yeah, this is what I can do. Uh, yeah. You're gonna slowly start seeing, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. And if you keep doing that, then boop, something's gonna hit you and you're gonna be like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like it just comes, like with teaching. I didn't know I was ever gonna be a teacher, never. Japan pulled that out of me. And then I realized my grandfather was a teacher my uncle is a teacher. My mom has been a part-time teacher. My cousins are teachers. My sister's a teacher. There's so many teachers yeah. in my family. So it's probably just something that we do. If you haven't been listening to yourself, it's so going to it. come back and hit you in the face. I love that's probably going to be one of your taglines. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. Oh my God. That, that means so much to me as well. I mean, I literally made a diary entry the last couple of weeks going, how the hell did I get here again? <laughs> like completely overwhelmed, doing loads of things, out of, sitting on loads of committees. What am I doing? Right, right, right. <laughs> I basically want to lie around doing art and writing, but um, no, I mean, I, I love it. I love it as well, but I was like, wow, what's happened? So I love that. If you haven't been listening to yourself, it's going to hit you in, in the face. Petra, it's been an absolute joy. Where and an education and so much information download. Thank you so much for your generous, generous sharing of oh, so many stories. And so much that. history and so much information. It, it was just, it's it's so generous and so tender as well. Yeah. And where can people find you if they do want to kind of connect with you or if they're interested? Sure, they can find me on Instagram at Naptural Travel. So that's Naptural. Yeah, N A P T U R A L Travel. Naptural, like natural as in the nappy curly curls yeah 
And it's got a little kind of lapteast yes, feeling about it as well. well. Hey, I I didn't realize that, but that's true. The PT, look at that. <laughs> okay, so natural travel, that's your Instagram that's handle. And um, that's the best way guess, to get to me. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So thank you once again. Thank you everybody for listening. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life. And I'm just kind of blown away on the journey that uh, Petra's just taken us around, around the world, basically literally around the world. And, you know, everybody has stories. And this is a story that I not only listen to, but I feel that I want to hold. I think I need, I hold this story and it's a story we all hold. And I'm so, so grateful to you, Petra. Thank you so much. Aww. Thank you, Sarah. It's just, I can't wait to actually see you. Uh, yes, like, I give you a big hug. <laughs> one day, I don't know when I'll be in Japan, but seriously, yeah. like, uh, yeah. thank you for giving me the chance to teach you palancing and, and Caribbean cooking and all that. That's just, Loved yeah, it. I still remember. Yeah, and uh, just to be clear, I didn't do any of the cooking. I was on the cocktail making. <laughs> I was like, that's, she was like, does somebody want to burn the aubergines and, uh, and skin them? I was like, no, <laughs> somebody else was like, hey, does anybody want to chop the veg and do this? And I was like, is there anything else to do? You're like, cocktails, may I'll do that. <laughs> Give me the blender and the rum. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, thank you, Petra. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.